Let's turn uh, again to 1 John 5 and 2 Corinthians 2. We're going to continue along the lines of uh, last meeting when we talked about victim or victor. Victim or victor. Sorry, what was your Corinthians? 2 uh, Corinthians 2. And I think there is one CD over there of last meeting. So if you want a CD of the last meeting, there's one over there. And if more than one people want one, just let me know and I can, I can make you one. Uh, but if you weren't here and you want to catch up, 1 John 5, 4 says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So by putting the word of God in our heart, uh, speaking word, faith words, taking faith actions that bring the power of God on the scene, um, we can come up and we can come out of trouble into victory. That's what this scripture is telling us. Now, we'll briefly review a, a, a little bit about some things we talked about last time. We talked about uh, faith does not deny what you have. It calls for what you don't have. Faith does not deny what you have. It calls for what you don't have. So it, you don't deny that you're in pain or, or you know, uh, struggling or whatever, but you call for healing or you call for money or you call for peace or what, whatever you don't have, that's what you call for. And that's what Romans 4.17 teaches us about calling things that are not as though they were. Let's say this together. We're coming up. We're coming out. This is going to be the best year I've ever experienced. More peace. More good health. More financial freedom. More opportunities to be a blessing. Amen. Now let's turn to Second uh, Corinthians 2. Verse 14 says, um, that's not the one I want, or I'm looking in the wrong. The one I want is we're troubled on every side. That's four. I think it's, it's four. Yeah, sorry. Four. I, I wrote down the wrong scripture. Was it's chapter four. That's a good one. Yeah, that's an associated one. Thanks be to God, which always causes us to triumph. That's what we were singing today. Yeah, that's that goes along with with what we're talking about. Uh, but I I uh, was heading also for chapter four, verse uh, eight. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, 
but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. So he's not denying the trouble he's experiencing. Um, he's just, uh, he, he's walking in, in faith. Uh, and like we said, let me get together here. Uh, he's not denying his problems. Here we are. Yeah, okay. Just want to make sure. I'd already looked at the wrong scripture, so I just want to make sure. So, uh, yes, we have trouble and problems, yet we're not distressed about it. So, in addition to all the natural physical obstacles and circumstances Paul had to deal with, the imprisonment, the stonings, the beatings, the shipwrecks, in addition to all that, he, he also says uh, in, in, here in 2 Corinthians, he talks about the cares of the churches coming on him daily. So all these churches that he started and all these letters here in the New Testament, Thessalonians and Corinthians and Ephesians, all these were lit, letters written to Christians in those churches or pastors like First and Second Timothy uh, all these letters were written to these Christians in these churches. So all these churches he started, they had lots of problems. <laughs> and uh, there were false teachers who, who would come in and the, uh, infiltrate the church and they would start preaching heresy and they would start uh, trying to drag people away from the truth and back over into traditions. There were false brethren. Uh, he, he refers to them as false brethren, people who pretended to be Christians who weren't. And they came into the congregations and they would sow discord and they would try to split the church and turn people against Paul and the pastor and all this. Uh, in uh, Corinthians, uh, there were open sexual sins taking place in that church. And all these things had to be addressed. And all this junk was coming on him on a daily basis. And back then, you know, you didn't just pick up the phone or send an email or whatever. I mean, it, there, these churches were hundreds and thousands of miles uh, away and apart from each other. And, and it took sometimes months just to sort out the smallest little problem, you know. So he had all these cares coming at him, uh, but yet Paul never played the victim card, did he? Yeah. You, never, you never see him feeling sorry for himself and being down, not even in the depths of prison. He's al always writing encouragement to somebody out there. So he never played the victim card. Jesus never played the victim card. Of all the groups of people on the earth that have been mistreated or <coughs> suffered persecution or whatever, which would include all of us, everybody at one time or another, uh, would come into that group. The one group that has never played the victim card are the Jews. There are groups of people 
who have suffered persecution and mistreatment for periods of time, maybe 20 years, maybe 50 years, maybe 100 years. But for 5,000 years, somebody driven by the devil has been trying to take the Jews out. 5,000 years they have experienced mistreatment and they have never played the victim card. Maybe that's one reason they're still around, you know? And they don't walk around with a chip on their shoulder always talking about, well, we can't get ahead because of so-and-so. They're, they're leading the world in technologies and medical advancements. Uh, they make up something like 0.1% of the world's population, yet percentage-wise, they have won more Nobel Prizes than any group of people on the earth. They have never played the victim card. And I think that has a lot to do um, with why they're still, you know, why nobody's ever been able to put them down, apart from the fact that God's with them. So if you're a Christian, is it possible to have problems and challenges and not be distressed about it? Yes, amen? That's the right answer? <laughs> and the Bible is full of people who were victors. The problem is, in the years uh, following the death of the apostles, the word of God began to be pushed aside. And, and theologians began to mix pagan Greek philosophy with Christian doctrine. And they jumbled it all up together, and this is what they began to teach, and the Word of God was moved up aside. So, uh, in the generation since then, we've been trained to respond to the circumstances and problems of life with worry <coughs> and distress and despair instead of responding biblically. That's basically what has happened. Now, the devil wants you to embrace the idea of being a victim. He tried it on Jesus. You remember uh, on one of those occasions when Jesus was talking to his disciples about what was going to happen to him. Several occasions he started trying to prepare them what was going to happen. Things were not going to stay the same. He was going to go to Jerusalem, and the chief priest and the scribes, they were going to kill him. Uh, on the third day, he was going to be raised uh, from the dead. And uh, Peter pulled him aside and said, Master, uh, this shouldn't happen to you. This, this shouldn't happen to you. Far be it from thee for this to happen to you. And he basically rebuked Jesus for saying that. And um, the liberal Greek actually says, Master, pity thyself. Master, pity thyself. In other words, you don't deserve to be treated this way. This is not fair. You've never done anything wrong. No, nobody should treat you like that. And, and Jesus recognized this is not Peter talking. This is Peter yielding to the devil. 
This is a devil trying to drag Jesus over into self-pity and self-preservation. Poor you. You don't deserve to be treated like this. You've only ever helped people. Why should, why should you have to go through this? And Jesus recognized this is a devil trying to drag him. And don't you know it was a temptation? Because he didn't want to go through that. Uh, and, and so Jesus recognized this is a devil. And he wheeled around to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. He wasn't talking to Peter. He was talking to the one behind Peter, trying to drag him into self-pity uh, and self-preservation. So Jesus didn't fall for the devil's victim game. Now, what would have happened if, if he had fallen into this trap of thinking about himself, you know, this self-pity and, and self-preservation? Uh, and, and not doing the will of God. All of humanity, all of us, we would have lived for eternity, separated from God, under the rule of the devil, never experiencing anything but failure and defeat and sickness and poverty. That's what would have happened. And Jesus knew all of this was at stake. So Jesus didn't fall for the devil's victim game. If you only seek out people who will listen to your situation and only sympathize with you and agree with you about how bad you are treated, it's not going to help you come out. Uh, it's just giving, uh, it's, it's giving reverence to this problem and really elevating it above God. It's, it's giving respect and all to this situation where it's even beyond God. You know, so constantly just seeking out people who will just sympathize with you doesn't help you to come out. Now let's say this out loud. The spirit of faith is the spirit of victory. One more time. The spirit of faith is the spirit of victory. I choose life. I'm a victor, not a victim. The greater one is living inside me. Amen. Now we talked about some other words associated with victims. Underdog. Unlucky. We don't believe in luck. Statistic. Casualty. And injured party. You can't be a victor if you always see yourself as the injured party. We have to identify with the risen Christ, not with our past experiences and what people did or didn't do, especially in our old life before we were born again. Colossians 2 says we are complete in him. We've been cleansed, we've been made right with God, and we must identify with our new life in Christ. And not always looking backward and revisiting these places. We talked about characteristics of a victim mentality. Victims blame other people for what they don't have, what they can't do, what's happened to them or what has not happened for them. 
They see themselves as the injured party, and they often want somebody else to pay for their hurt. We talked about, uh, you know, not always rehearsing and not continually rehearsing and, and revisiting these situations, but keeping that bandage on, that wound, and allowing the Lord to completely heal it. Now, I'm sure there is no one here that would ever do this. But there are times when people use situations to manipulate people to feel sorry for them. And you may have run across people like that. And this can begin at an early age. At one time or another, we all remember that when we were sick, what happened? We didn't have to go to school. <laughs> and we could stay at home, and we could lay on the sofa, and our, watch our favorite TV shows, and our mother or our grandmother would fix all our favorite foods, and we could even have ice cream, and uh, we could lay in their lap, and they would read to us, and they would stroke our head, and make us feel better. And you know, a couple of days of that, and you think, you know, I could extend this another day. You know what I mean? So people, we're trained to pick these things up at an early age, aren't we? Or using sickness to avoid doing something you don't want to do, or avoid using it uh, you know, little kids, they know they've been caught doing something they weren't supposed to do or something. They disobeyed their parents. And now they know the hammer's about to come down. And they're about to get in trouble. Mommy, my stomach hurts. <laughs> I think I need to go lay down. Now what is that? That's using, that's faking an illness, basically, to avoid punishment, isn't it? So, little kids are smart. I mean, we've all experienced this. We, we catch on pretty quick to these little things, don't we? Uh, I heard uh, one story about a Christian woman who um, had asthma and had one of these inhaler things. And... Um, Whenever she would get into an argument with her husband, and the argument wasn't going her way, uh, or she wanted to avoid, you know, some kind of an unpleasant conversation or something, she would fake an asthma attack. And she began to do this over time. And this minister, unbeknown to him, he knew nothing about this lady. But the Lord spoke a word to her through them. And, and they did not know the situation at all. All they knew from the Lord was, if you don't stop what you're doing, this is going to be trouble. Using this thing to manipulate people and control people. Six months later, she died. Guess what she died of? Asthma attack. So... Never use sickness as a convenience 
or to get out of doing something. It is not your friend. Poverty is not your friend. You can't treat sickness as a, as a convenience or some kind of advantage one day and the next day believe God for healing. You can't, people can't use poverty uh, as some kind of benefit or convenience or advantage one day and the next day believe for prosperity. It's not going to happen. The, the faith is just not going to be there to happen. Uh, one of the churches, uh, one church I went to in London, uh, there was a guy came through there, and I knew about it because the little bit of time, what brief time he was there, he came to the cell group that I was in. And I would say he was probably about 40, able-bodied man. But he probably had every poverty spirit in the whole United Kingdom on him. He roamed from one church, one town to another, one church to another. People would feel sorry for him. They'd give him some money. They'd give him some food. And I don't know where he stayed while, while he was there. But uh, he claimed to be a Christian, and I don't remember what his story was, but he just wrong from church to church and you know this is the way he made his living and I guess he stayed there long enough till maybe somebody said we'll help you find a job and he moved on to the next town you know but uh, he was using this poverty spirits to to gain sympathy from just groups of Christians uh, everywhere he, he went, and they were not helping him. They were just kind of feeding his self-pity. And I don't remember his particular story. But you can't be friends with sickness and poverty. Uh, you got to let go of whatever advantage you think they give you. You know, if you're in order to be free from these things, to come out, you got to let go of any advantage you think sickness or poverty gives you. Now let's look at a few examples in the Bible. Let's turn to Genesis 42. Let's look at uh, several victim mentalities in the Bible. Genesis 42, 36. Now this is, you're familiar with the story of Joseph and his uh, his father was Jacob, and uh, you know Joseph's brothers were all very jealous of him, uh, and so they plotted to kill him. And the, one of the brothers talked him out of it. Said, "No, let's don't kill him. There's a hole in the ground over there. Let's just throw him in the hole." They went back to the father. They lied to the father. They made up a story and made the father believe that Joseph was dead when he really wasn't. And then many years later, I think about maybe about 10 or 13 years later, during this period of time, God promotes Joseph to second in command of all of Egypt. So when they had this big famine in Israel, they had to go to Egypt to get food. And guess who's in charge of all the food? Joseph. And so the, the brothers didn't recognize him, but he recognized them. And he sent the brothers back to the father and said, I want you 
to bring the youngest son, Benjamin, back with you. So this is the background, and they come to Jacob here, and they're saying, we got to take Benjamin back with us. And Jacob says, he, he's already lost Joseph. Now he thinks he's about to lose Benjamin. And this is what he says in verse 36. And Jacob their father said unto them, Me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. This is the way victims talk. All these things are against me. The Good News translation says, I am the one who suffers. The Voice translation says, everything and everyone is against me. The Christian Standard Bible says, everything happens to me. Everybody's against me. Nobody really cares about me. Nobody ever phones me to see how I'm doing. I could just sit here and die and nobody would ever find me. <laughs> you know, that's, that, that's pitiful, isn't it? I've got nothing to live for. That's basically what Jacob is saying. I've got nothing to live for. This is a mentality of a victim. And when you start down that path, the devil will start feeding these thoughts to you and it will get darker and darker and it's a path of defeat and destruction. And if you could see the demons that you're fellowshipping with, it would turn your stomach. And you, you wouldn't get in, you wouldn't, you would really avoid that path. If you could see the demons that, that are involved in dragging you down this path, it would turn your stomach. It's unbelief, it's being unthankful for all the Lord has already done for you, it's being unthankful for what other people have done for you. It's the opposite of the spirit of faith and it's the spirit of unbelief and unthankfulness. So, you know, if you're in a position where, you know, you, somebody says, how are you doing? If you're really not doing okay, don't say everything's okay. Just saying, I don't want to talk about that right now. Uh, we're leaving the bandage on that and the Lord's healing it. Amen? Uh, or you can have the spirit of faith like the Shunammite woman and 2 Kings 4. We're not going to turn there, but write it down because I want you to go read that again tonight. Elisha prophesied that this woman would have a son, and she did. And some years later, he died in her arms. And she said, had the servant saddle the donkey, and she said to her husband, I'm going to see the preacher. And her husband said, why are you going to see the preacher today? It's not the Sabbath. It's not a holy day. What did she say? It will be well. It will be well. So she gets on the donkey and she races to Elisha's house. And he sees her coming up the road. 
and in his spirit, he knows something is wrong. And he sends a servant out to her and says, ask her, is it well with your husband? Is it well with you? Is it well with your son? Now her son has just died. And what did she say? It is well. Let's all say that together. It is well. One more time. It is well. Amen. And if you read the rest of this story, because of this woman's spirit of faith and words of faith, Elisha went home with her and raised the boy from the dead. Now what if she had played the victim card instead? All these years we waited and now he's dead. Why, why didn't you just leave us alone? They would have had a funeral, wouldn't they? She could have done it, couldn't she? I mean, she could have played the victim, but this woman had the spirit of faith. Amen? I think this is one of the most inspiring stories in the Old Testament. I'm telling you, this lady just about outdid them all. And this story had a happy, victorious, overcoming ending. Amen? Like the Lord said to Joyce Meyer, you can be pitiful or you can be powerful, but you can't be both. Amen? And if we're all honest at one time or another, we've all yielded to this to some degree. So we're not pointing the finger at people, but boy, that woman, she made the right choice, didn't she? Hallelujah. But now we should be able to recognize when we're being dragged down this path and stop it immediately. Now let's turn over to 1 Samuel 22. And we'll look at another example of a victim mentality. 1 Samuel 22. Uh, Saul was the first king of Israel. And after David killed Goliath, Saul became very jealous of David. He saw David as a threat to him. David was so popular with the people. Uh, it really uh, turned Saul toward David. And Saul made David his enemy. Now Saul's son was named Jonathan. And Jonathan was a very close friend with David. And they formed this pact, this covenant or this allegiance together that they would help and defend each other to death. That was part of their pact or agreement. So Jonathan is aiding David, who's now his father's enemy. And of course, <coughs> The father is not too happy about this arrangement, okay? And it comes to Saul's knowledge that his son is aiding uh, David escape because Saul is trying to track him down. 
And it comes to the knowledge of Saul's men and his soldiers that they knew about this and they didn't tell him. And now Saul has found out about it. So in verse 8, this is Saul talking. He's gathered all his men around and he says that all of you have conspired against me and there is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse. Talking about David. And there is none of you that is sorry for me. Or showed me that my son hath stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait at this day. There is none of you that is sorry for me. Other translations say, all of you have conspired against me. None of you cares about me. You're all plotting against me. None of you cared enough to tell me. There's not one of you that pitieth my case. None of you cares enough about me to tell me. None of you feel sorry for me. What does he want? <laughs> yeah. No one is concerned about me. None of you has shown compassion for me. None of you have had sympathy for me. What's a recurring word in all of these translations? Me. Me, me, me. Why do people want sympathy? Because it's bad, they think it's going to stay bad, and uh, you know, everybody's against me and nobody cares, and uh, you know, you can hear this over and over, nobody cares about me, you, you know, nobody has sympathy for me and, and all this. This man is the king of Israel. He's supposed to know God. He has personally been chosen, handpicked by God himself. Is this man acting like a victor? No. He's acting like a three-year-old, <laughs> basically. We're going to see another three-year-old here in a minute, too. But, but Romans 1 says, unthankfulness darkens your understanding. Now write this down. The more unthankful you become, this is just kind of a paraphrase of Romans 1.21, the more unthankful you become and the less you acknowledge God, the less you acknowledge God in your life, your thoughts become futile. I think the King James word Version says vain. And your understanding is darkened. The more unthankful you become and the less you acknowledge God in your life, your thoughts become futile and your understanding is darkened. Romans 1.21 The word futile means to make empty, 
vain, foolish, useless, and confused. The word describes the perverted logic and idolatrous presumption of those who do not honor God or show him any gratitude for his blessings on humanity. And this is exactly what happened to Saul. He's yielding to self-pity and he's yielding to unthankfulness and he's playing the victim card. None of you feel sorry for me. And from this point on, his life begins to go downhill. He disobeyed God. He's rebellious. He's hard-headed. God removed his anointing from him. And his understanding became so darkened, his mind became so confused, he went to a witch, which today we would call a palm reader, but a more accurate word is a witch. He went to a witch to try to find out what he was supposed to do. Now that's how far down he went. Do you remember how he died? He committed suicide on the battlefield. His armor bearer committed suicide on the battlefield. And all of his sons died on the battlefield on the same day. Not good. And this self-pity and playing the victim was connected he was quite complicated, but this was involved in the downward spiral in his life. He felt sorry for himself, and he was mad at the people around him because they did not feel sorry for him. And his understanding became darker and darker. He became more and more confused, and his judgment became skewed. So the way you come out of it, you're thankful, you, you be thankful to God for what he's already done for you, for what you have. You're thankful uh, for what other people have done for you, and you don't talk about what you don't have and what you are not. As believers, we have no reason to feel sorry for ourselves. Our circumstances are temporal, and they are subject to change. Amen? The things which are unseen are eternal. Our, our situations, our circumstances are temporary and subject to change. Everybody say <coughs> thankfulness. 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 Amen. Now, we're not going to turn there for the sake of time, but write down 1 Kings 21. This is a story of Ahab and Jezebel. And you may have read, you've probably read that story, but this Jezebel lady was one hardcore, nasty piece of work. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's, that's being pretty kind. <laughs> now, this is a situation uh, Ahab was the king, Jezebel was his wife, she basically ran the house in the country, but 
uh, technically he was the king. There was a righteous, godly man there in town named Naboth, and he had a vineyard that Ahab wanted to buy. And Ahab approached him with this deal, uh, I, I want to buy your vineyard, or we can just swap land. You know, we'll just do a swap, and I'll trade you a piece of my land for your vineyard. And um, so Naboth says, well, you know, being a godly man, I've got to seek the Lord about this and get his mind on what I should do. So he goes before the Lord, and the Lord impresses on him, don't sell the vineyard. Uh, you keep that in your family, that's part of your inheritance, and your family's inheritance. So Naboth goes back to Ahab and says, uh, the Lord has told me not to sell the vineyard. So Ahab is furious, and he's also hurt. He got rejected. So what does Ahab do? He goes home, he falls in bed, and he puts his face in the pillow, and he pouts, and he won't eat anything. And uh, because Naboth won't sell him his vineyard. Now, Ahab already has more vineyards than he can keep up with. He can spend days being driven around in his chariot, inspecting all his vineyards. Every direction you look is Ahab's vineyard. It all belongs to him. Is he thankful for all the vineyards that he already has? No. He's totally consumed and focused on the one vineyard he does not have. So this is... This is the situation. He's unthankful um, up for all the vineyards he has. He's only looking and pouting over the one he does not have. So Jezebel comes in and uh, finds him in the bed with his face in the pillow. And she says, sweetheart, what's wrong? I've never seen you so upset. And, and he says, what? Get your face out of the pillow. I can't understand a word you're saying. Naboth won't sell me his vineyard. What? Naboth won't sell you his vineyard? How dare he refuse the king? How dare he say no to what the king wants? I know how bad you want that vineyard. You've got to be joking. What's she doing? She's empowering, enabling, encouraging, and feeding his self-pity. She says, I know your flesh is never going to be satisfied till you get that vineyard. So you just leave it with me, sweetheart. I'll get that vineyard for you. Because I don't want to see you, your flesh so upset. So 
If you read the rest of the story, it does not go well. And when you get home tonight, sit down with your cup of tea or coffee and read this whole chapter. Jezebel goes out and she pays some men in town to make up a story and falsely accuse Naboth of some crime or some wrongdoing. He's found guilty in a fake court. He's executed and they seize his vineyard. And it does not end well for Ahab and Jezebel either. Lying, stealing, murder. Where did it all begin? Ahab at home pouting and feeling sorry for himself focused on the one piece of land he does not have. That's where it all started. And go home tonight and read the whole rest of this story and you will see this did not end well for Ahab and Jezebel either. Now, parents, grandparents, spouses, everyone within the sound of my voice that's going to hear this in the future, allowing people and relatives to put pressure on you to do things for them is not walking in love. Okay? Does this sound familiar? If you loved me, you would do this for me. If they loved you, they would not be saying that. That is the devil. When you hear people say that, that is not God talking to you. That's people pressuring you to putting you under pressure to do something for them. That is emotional blackmail. That's what it is. <clears throat> it's not walking in love. It's emotional blackmail. Doesn't that sound what, like Delilah, what Delilah, the way she worked on Samson? If you loved me, you would tell me your secret. Doesn't that sound like the devil just slithering up to somebody? Victims have this mentality, the world owes me something, or God owes me something. So, when people say, you owe me, that's not God talking, okay? Let's say this together. They owe me nothing. They don't owe me an apology. They don't owe me an explanation. Amen. And this is how you get free by releasing these people. The Bible compares forgiveness with the releasing of a debt. You just tear up, you know, if the revenue people just tear up Rosemary's little tax thing, then she doesn't know anybody anything. Doesn't matter if they feel like it or not. If the thing's torn up, nobody owes anybody anything. Amen? Now, let's look at, before we stop, let's look at a, a, a victor or a couple of victors. There's lots of victors in the Bible. Um, but the next time, you know, we think we've had a bad day or a bad year 
Remember Job. <laughs> Has anybody in here ever lost all your children and all your possessions in the same day? No. So I think we've all got something to be thankful for. Amen? But his wife tried to pressure him into playing the victim card. She said, why don't you just curse God and die? Now that's pushing him to play the victim. Why don't you just curse God and die? Boy, that's a lot of help, isn't it? But he refused to play the victim card and he came out a victor and it turned for Job. It took him a while. He didn't have the Bible. He, he wasn't born again. He didn't have the New Testament. He didn't have the Holy Spirit living in him. It took him a while to figure out where he missed it and it had something to do with his mouth and it had something to do with fear. But he finally made the connection and the Bible says when he prayed for his friends the Lord restored to Job twice as much as he had before. Amen. Amen? So instead of going the victim way he came out the victor with twice what he had to begin with. Amen? So he's a good example of a victor. Let's look at one more. You're still there in 1 Samuel. Uh, go back to chapter 1. And this is the story of Hannah, who was the mother of Samuel the prophet. And Hannah's husband was Elkanah. And he had another wife besides Hannah. Now, this is not the Bible. This is just me talking. <laughs> this is just my opinion. Anytime you got a man with two or more women in the same house, that is a recipe for disaster. <laughs> and why God allowed this in those times, I don't know. I'm being totally honest. I don't know why men were allowed to have multiple wives back then. You know, I'm not losing any sleep over it, but it just looks like a recipe for disaster to me because every place in the Bible you see that happen. Abraham Jesus. with Hagar and Sarah, and there's always this conflict in the household. So I don't understand that, but this was a situation. He had another wife besides Hannah. It tells you what her name here was. I forget. Fit. Penina or something and she had children but Hannah did not and of course this caused conflict again and the other wife would mock and tease and make fun of Hannah and provoke her and tease her because she didn't have any children and uh, in those days having kids was a really really big deal uh, it was a cultural thing, and, you know, I don't quite understand that either, but anyway, it was a really big deal. So the fact that she didn't have kids, uh, and the other wife did, and this other wife was constantly harassing her, 
it was causing problems. And so here in uh, verse 7, her husband, you know, he was a godly man, and they would go to the house of God and offer their offerings and so forth. And it says, verse 7, And as he did so year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, so she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Now, everybody say year after year. Year after year. This went on for years. She cried and she cried. And she didn't eat and she didn't eat and she cried and she cried some more. This went on for years. And her husband said, why do you cry all the time? <laughs> Aren't I better than ten sons? That's what he said here. You've got me. Why are you so upset? I mean, I'm so wonderful. You got me. Why are you, you know, what's the deal? You know. And she would say, ha, ha, ha. And she would cry some more. Now, you know, this must have put a strain on their marriage. Year after year, day after day, she's crying and sobbing, and she won't eat. This constant cloud of darkness in this household, day after day, year after year, that must have been a real strain. And in verse 10, she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. The easy-to-read version says, Hannah was so sad that she cried the whole time she was praying to the Lord. If you're sobbing while you're praying, are you in faith? No. She's sobbing before the Lord, and whatever she's praying, it's not in faith. The message translation says, Hannah prayed to God and cried and cried inconsolably. How's this working out so far? It's not moving God, is it? For years she's been crying and praying, and it's not moving God. There's no faith in this. Is she thankful for what she does have? No. She's got a good husband. She's got a good home. She's got a good life. And that is totally oblivious to her. This is the way the devil works on people, is to make you totally oblivious of all the blessings you have, all God's done for you, all other people have done for you, and get you zeroed in and focused on this one thing that she does not have. So Eli, the priest, thought she was drunk. And in verse 15... And Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I poured out my soul before the Lord. The uh, contemporary English version says, But I do feel miserable and terribly upset. I've been praying all this time, telling the Lord about my problems. <laughs> 
telling the Lord about my problems. Is that praying in faith? No. We need, we want, we gotta have no faith in that. The Common English Bible says, I'm just a very sad woman. The God's Word translation says, No, sir, I'm not drunk. I'm depressed. So she's in this vicious cycle year after year. It sounds kind of like Charles Capps, that time he was in this deep financial trouble, and he was so worried, and he'd go before the Lord, and he would rehearse all this all over and over and again. And the Lord said, what are you doing? He said, I'm praying. And the Lord said, no, you're not. You're complaining. So it sounds a, a lot like this is what Hannah had gotten into, this vicious cycle. But it turned for Hannah, and this story has a happy ending. In verse 17, it goes on to say here how she prayed silently and so forth. Then Eli, the priest, answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. So even though she was just sobbing and telling the Lord about her problems all the time, and it wasn't doing any good, and it wasn't moving God, when Eli said to her, Go your way, and the Lord has granted your petition, she took those words from him as direct from God. She took that as a word from God directly, as an answer to her prayer. And it says, at that moment, she believed she received a child. When, she, when he spoke those words, she took that as an, as an answer, and she believed she received at that moment. Verse 18, and she said, let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. A few months later, Samuel was born. Now, did Hannah feel sorry for herself? because she couldn't have kids, or she couldn't have kids because she felt sorry for herself. Could it have been the other way around? Because when, when she took that word from the Lord and her, she was no more sad and she began to give thanks and she believed she received and she started getting in faith, a few months later, Samuel was born. Amen? So surely we all have something we can be thankful for and focus on instead of what we don't have. Life is too short to constantly be fixating on the one thing that we don't have and ignoring all the blessings that we do have. You can write down the scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation test or trial taken you, but such is common to man. So whatever you've been through in the past, whatever you're going through today, it's a common thing. It's common. 
Uh, the devil wants you to think your situation is unique. Nobody else has ever been through this. Uh, but this agrees with what, uh, you know, Peter says. Uh, I think it's chapter 5. He said, our brethren all over the world are suffering the same afflictions. So, so, in other words, everybody, all Christians everywhere, are going through the same thing we're going through. It's common. So don't let the devil make you think, well, your situation is so unique, you know. No, it's common. If this thing was capable of destroying you, God would not even let you face it. That's what the scripture's saying. If you could not overcome something, God would never even let it confront you. You'd never even be challenged with it. If you're facing it, God knows you're capable of overcoming it. Feed yourself with the word. Pray in tongues. The perfect will of God in advance. Uh, you know, if you only hear the word once in a while, you only pray in the spirit once in a while, it makes things more difficult. It's kind of like a car that you never service. It just kind of sputters along, you know. Here's the, the meaning of victor. One that defeats an enemy or opponent. A winner. Conqueror, master, subduer, champion. What, what if Jezebel had gone in and found Ahab with his face in the pillow. What if she would have said to him, get up out of that bed, stop acting like a three-year-old, you are the king of Israel, start acting like one. The man doesn't want to sell his land, get over it. What if she would have said that? It would have been a whole different ending to that story, wouldn't it? Amen? We already looked at 2 Corinthians 2.14. Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. Write this down. We must identify with the risen Christ. The ultimate victor. We must identify with the risen Christ, the ultimate victor. So even if we lose a battle, the war's not over. And if we experience a temporary setback, the game's not over. Amen? Jesus has already defeated the devil. We own the bat and the ball. Jesus is the umpire. And the devil can't strike us out. Amen? We get to bat as long as it takes for us to win. Because Jesus is the umpire and he's making up the rules, not the devil. So he can't strike us out. When you believe this, you can't stay depressed. Amen? So let's say this out loud. I'm a winner. I'm an overcomer. The greater one lives inside of me. I yield to him. He always causes me to triumph. I'm always a victor. Never a victim. Thank you, Lord.